Welcome to Real Estate Investing in the Real World podcast. The following is a detailed comparison of creative real estate financing techniques, and we'll talk about owner financing, also known as seller financing. You may have heard it called owner carry, same thing. We'll talk about subject two. We'll talk about contract for deeds, or what are also called land contracts. And we'll talk about lease options, what are also referred to as lease purchase agreements, or rent to own, you may have heard it. Now, this is not going to go into great detail of each term and understanding of those, because I already have a great video on that, How to Buy Real Estate Without Cash or Credit, where I delivered a lecture to the business school of the University of Central Florida on the subject of creative real estate financing techniques. And I go into great detail of the history and how they're constructed. Instead, here, this video is about a comparison. When to use what techniques, when not to use those techniques, their strengths, their weaknesses, and I'm gonna sprinkle in some real world nuggets from all the experience we have. We've been applying this, my organization, Freedom Mentor, along with the apprentices we mentor, for over 20 years. And we've applied these techniques to thousands of deals across the United States and Canada. We've made a fortune from them, but we've also seen the good, the bad, and the ugly. Because Murphy's Law, whatever can go wrong, will go wrong, that has happened to us. We've experienced things that most people would never imagine from these techniques, and we've learned. And so I'm going to share with you some of the wisdom we've discovered from literally thousands of these transactions. And what that means to you is this. What I say on this particular subject, you can take to the bank literally. So let's start with owner financing. Why is it better to use owner financing when you're buying? Well, the first fundamental difference is that with owner financing or with subject to, you are going to be on title. You're going to get title to the property. By comparison, when you do a lease option with a seller, you're not getting on title. You're, you are a tenant. You are renting the property and then you have this option to purchase it. Now, why that's such a problem for you when you're buying is with a lease option, that owner could still encumber. They could still have a lien put on the property that you're supposed to buy. I'm going to give you an example of this. And some, uh, in this example, I'm going to embed uh, what people have used as a workaround, which still doesn't work around the problem. So I had bought this property on a lease option, and that was because the seller would not agree to subject two, and um, I'll go into that in a minute on why subject two is such a difficult one to negotiate. And I thought it was pretty much bulletproof because I thought there was about 40000 in equity. I had moved a tenant buyer in there. And so I did what the creative, creative people do when they do a lease option. And I recorded a second mortgage for about $40,000 in equity. That way, if that uh, original owner ever encumbered the property, my $40,000 lien would uh, supersede. And I took it over subject to, so there was a first mortgage in place. So I thought I was brilliant. I did this. Okay, so two years go by, and then the tenant buyer is going to buy the property. And actually, I was going to make a little more than $40,000. i am super excited. We get to the point of doing an updated title search, and the title commitment comes back, and that's when they did a search on the personal of who the owners were. Now, here's what happened. In those two years, that individual got married. He got married to someone who had $80,000 in past due student loans. And the way it worked in Tennessee, and it works like that in several other states, was that the personal uh, debt against those people, if they were in the level of judgment, those have to be settled as part of any real estate transaction. So this guy had married someone who had $80,000 in past due student loans. I went to try to close on this property, and even though I had that $40,000 lien, it didn't matter. I had to somehow deal with the $80,000 uh, lien that had popped up, and the deal fell apart. I lost a fortune. 
So what's the lesson there? The lesson is when it comes to buying property, you want to get on title. And that's what can happen with these two techniques on this side. You're going to get on title. And that eliminates the problem of years from now having a title issue. In this case, the guy got married to someone with a bunch of judgments on student loans. Okay, so not only is owner financing helpful there, the next thing that's really nice about owner financing, not that you're ever going to do this to a, to a seller who becomes the bank, if you will, is that in order for you to lose this property, you're going to have to get foreclosed upon. And I don't know if you're completely aware of the length of time for foreclosure, but let me tell you, in most states, regardless of COVID and regardless of a foreclosure moratorium, it can take years to legally foreclose on a property. So let's say, for example, you're doing a deal and you get into a cash flow pinch and for whatever reason the tenant's not paying you and you can't make this mortgage for a month or two. You're not going to lose that deal. Now, yes, it's not a good idea to, to not pay an owner-financed uh, monthly payment, but it gives you a level of security because you know it's going to take them a very long time to be foreclosed upon. So owner-financing is the direction we want to go in when we're buying. Now, what about this thing called subject to? What, what is that? How does that fit in? Now, owner-financing works when the, when the owner owns it free and clear. And I will also talk about how we do both these two at the same time in some cases. But when they own it free and clear is typically when you structure owner financing. Did you know that 50% or more of all properties in America are owned free and clear? More than 50%. So next time you see one of those uh, fear-mongering uh, media articles talking about the idea that there's so many people that are fast, past due on their mortgage and it's going to be this massive foreclosure tsunami, remember that more than 50% of people don't even have a loan. Okay, so free and clear works with owner financing. What happens when they have a first mortgage? Enter subject two. Subject to is where you are taking title to the property subject to the existing liens, hence the phrase subject to. Well, this is the most powerful, but the most misunderstood, and the most controversial, and perhaps the, uh, the most challenging technique that exists in creative real estate financing, whether residential or commercial. What's happening is you're basically buying the property but the original owner's name stays on the loan. So that introduces this concept of what we would call the challenges or the weaknesses. And that's going to be, it's a tough sell. This is not an easy arrangement to convince a seller to do. Kind of quick story about this. When I was first getting started, I would go to these small little meetings around Nashville where they'd get these investors together. And I'd been at it for several months and I'd talked to hundreds of sellers. And this person was talking about a, a, a deal that they had done owner financing or they'd done subject to with. And I kind of burst out and I said, this, this is bull. This doesn't exist in the real world. I talked to hundreds of sellers. Sellers don't let me take over their loan and me become the owner. And nobody wants to do owner financing. They want their money now, now, now. This is bull. And I remember the guy just started chuckling. And it was years later I figured out why he was chuckling. He was chuckling because he understood that I had no idea what I was talking about. And I was a novice. And if you don't know what you're doing, 
these deals will elude you. If you don't know which sellers to be talking to and you don't know how to present this in the most palatable way for the sellers to accept it, you're not going to get either of these to work. But it is best for buying. Instead, what happens, because it's a tough sell, a lot of beginners go to this side of the spectrum and they agree to these. And these are bad deals when you're trying to buy because of what I've already mentioned. Okay, so it's a tough sell. It's also controversial because some would argue that there is this scary thing called a do-on-sale clause. What is that? That is this, this issue with the lender who has already signed, you know, has this documentation with the original borrower stating that if the original borrower transfers title, if they change title, that the lender can call the loan due, due on sale. And so that creates a lot of fear in novices. They say, uh-oh. So even if I take this property over subject two, I, I, I get over this hump of being able to sell the seller. Well, now all of a sudden the bank could just pull the rug out from underneath me and I could just lose the whole deal. Well, I would argue that if you structure these deals correctly, uh, this is pretty much non-existent. Certainly if you make the mortgage payments each month, it's pretty much non-existent. So uh, I, I've often asked, and I'll do it again now, if you would, if you have a concrete example, real proof that a lender has called a loan due in the past 20 years on a subject to deal that you have done or someone you know very well and can show the evidence that they have done a due on sale on a deal that was paid on time each month, I would really appreciate you dropping a comment down there. I've never seen it. Never. But I continue to ask for it, and there might be out there, and I'm hoping I see an example. I mean, this is so insanely rare that it doesn't really exist. Now, if you structure it wrong, you could create some examples where you might uh, almost... Um, antagonize the lender and you might uh, put them to a point where they actually want to do this. Uh, so this this is a, uh, a this is basically a myth. Meanwhile this is real and, and with subject two I've got some other tips I want to share with you because we do a lot with this. Another problem you have is insurance. Okay um, the property insurance policy must be approved by the lender and so if you don't have the insurance done correctly, the lender could kick it back and then do what's called forced insurance, which costs like three to five times as much money. So for most of you, the simple solution is just to get a second insurance policy and leave the old one in place, which means it's a drawback, you're paying double insurance. Uh, our organization invented a technique to solve the problems we've run into as subject to, but uh, there are ways to get around this insurance problem besides the double payment. Another thing to keep in mind, you don't want to take over someone else's HELOC that has money in it, that has equity. You've got to be very careful because if you take over a property subject to and it's got a second mortgage as a HELOC, and let's say that the HELOC has a max of $60,000 and they only owe $10,000, that's $50 more thousand dollars where that seller, that borrower can pull that money out and now you're in, now you just lost $50,000. So you've got to be careful of those with subject twos. Um, now, another thing that I love about the subject two is not just the first mortgage you could take over, which by the way, you want to take over those that are 30 year fixed rate loans, low interest rate, right? Um, we like it when they have a little bit of maturity. If you get one that's, you know, let's say five or seven years old, more of the payments going toward principal. We really like those. 
Uh, but at the same time, you got to be careful about taking over property subject to that. Let's say we're three hundred thousand, and there's a loan of fifty thousand, and that's been in place for seventeen years. The payment might be really high relative to the fifty thousand dollar debt. So there are going to be examples where it just doesn't make sense. And I need to be clear here: just because you can do a creative financing technique doesn't mean you should do it. It still needs to make a profit. I should go without saying, but I see so often where beginners are so um, enthusiastic about applying one of these techniques that they do it on a bad deal and they lose money and then that's when all heck breaks loose. Okay, so this is another tip. It's not just your first mortgages. I'm going to call it your, uh, your other liens. Taking over properties subject to that have other liens can be some of the most profitable deals you do and here's why. Oftentimes states have a statute of limitations or an expiration date on liens. And so I have done many deals over the years, made a fortune from it, where I take over a deal subject to some of the liens that might need to uh, age another two or three years and then they're going to expire. I did one deal. I made an extra $60,000 by waiting a year and a half for those liens to expire. But the seller couldn't wait that long, right? And so uh, taking over a property subject to is not just about taking over a first mortgage, it's also about taking over any other liens as well. Keep in mind too, I talk about how powerful this is. Uh, don't use this for evil. Don't take over a property subject to and then not make the underlying payment. Now you're hurting their, uh, their credit. On the other side of the coin, when you do make the payments, you really help the borrower's credit, which brings me to a huge weakness we have with subject to. And that is, it's in almost all cases going to be short term and length. By short term, we're talking a couple of years or less. Now, I, I will say there is a caveat. If you take over a property subject to someone, uh, a borrower who has passed away, so you, you get a, a call from someone who's going through the probate process, they just inherited their property, uh, and there is a loan on the property, those are good ones to take over subject to because federal laws prohibit lenders from calling a loan due just because the borrower passed away. They can call it due if it is not being paid on time, but they can't pull the due on sale clause if someone passes away. So me and my apprentices, we've taken over many deals over the years from a deceased borrower. And why that is so helpful is this next point. So with a sh uh, what I mean by short term is this. Let's say you take over a property subject to, let's say you catch up some of the back payments and you really help that seller. Well, what happens is about six months or a year from now, that seller's in a different mind space than they were when they connected with you. When they connected with you, they're three, they're five, they're seven payments behind, and they just don't care about becoming a homeowner again. And then you come along, you catch up those payments, and you're making those payments on time, which drastically improves their credit. A year goes by, they get letters in the mail, they get emails, they get all these offers to go get, get new credit, get new debt. And now all of a sudden, their mind space is different. And they go to try to get that loan, and all of a sudden, this one shows up. And they say, you need to get this paid off. I need to go buy this. I need to buy that. They turn into a completely different person. So it's not that the lender can call it due. It's that the seller can throw a fit a year or two later. And so typically, we negotiate you know, short-term deals here. In fact, a lot of our creative financing deals are actually extremely short-term. They're, they're two, three, four, five months. A lot of times, we just need enough time to get it fixed up and resold, so we turn the seller into our hard money lender with these techniques, whereby we might do a subject two on the first mortgage, and then we might do owner financing in the second position. So this one right here, 
is, is obviously trickier because now there's this other borrower involved and their name is on the loan and you're making payments on time and the year or two goes by and they want it uh, removed. We've solved most of those problems with our proprietary technique on how we handle subject twos, but one problem we haven't solved is what if that borrower a year or two later wants to file bankruptcy? Well, this loan can stop them from doing that, and sometimes that, that creates a real headache too. So you need to do deals where there's enough room that if you did have to get out because the seller's throwing a fit and you need like two or three months to do it, that you can do that. Uh, there's another problem with subject two, and that is you don't get title insurance. Uh, title insurance is, uh, is incredibly important. Many of you all may have not dealt with title insurance problems in the past, but let me tell you, they are serious. Uh, we had a deal not too long ago where the deal had been purchased, put $100,000 into a major rehab, resold it, made $150,000 net profit, and then it was a year after that closing, so the new buyers already living in there, they're happy as they could be. The original seller's aunt files a lawsuit that the original seller did not have the right to sell the property to my apprentice, who subsequently fixed it up and resold it. And that was a massive title issue that took two years in court. Now, uh, my apprentice won, but the idea is that if he didn't have title insurance, that would have cost him a fortune in legal fees in order to defend himself. So, with a subject to deal, there is no title insurance. You only want to do these deals when you know there's clear title. And that's an entirely different discussion I don't have time to go into. But again, as you're seeing, this is powerful but complicated. Now, I will say that this technique right here has been the one we've used the most, we've made the most money with, but it's also been the one that we've learned the most lessons along the way in order to navigate. But if you're buying property, if you can pull it off, if you can negotiate it, negotiate subject to wherever possible. It's a great angle, especially if you're doing it short term. The only long term example I can give is if the borrower has passed. If the borrower's passed away, then you're, you're in much better shape because now you don't have anybody to complain to you. But again, if you stop making the payments, they will call that loan due or they'll foreclose on you. All right, so jumping back to owner financing. Owner financing, sometimes we will do in the second position with subject two. There's a first mortgage on the property, and now we're going to try to do a subject two on the first, and then we're going to try to do owner financing on the second. Owner financing has a similar problem to subject two in that it is short-term typically in nature. Short-term because most sellers don't want to be the bank forever. They may want to be the bank for a very short period of time, even a couple of years, one of my best examples, I, I own quite a few properties owner financed, and, uh, and one of the reasons why I'm able to pull it off is when I'm dealing with a seller who is looking for long-term income. Maybe they're, they're getting older, they don't want to deal with a rental, but they still want the income coming in. They will agree to owner financing. Now, sometimes they want a, a pretty sizable down payment if they want to go longer. If we're going really short term, like a couple of months, we don't even need to do a down payment. We start talking about long term, they want to have 10, 20, 30% down. I'm going to give you an example of a deal I own right now where the seller, her son was a meth head and he had just moved in and she, he had brought in some of his crazy friends and they're, they're doing awful stuff. Police were showing up there, you know, once a week. And so she wanted to sell the property. But she did not want to take a bunch of cash. Because if she did, she was worried that her drug addict son would perhaps kill her and take the money and all that bad stuff. So we structured owner financing on a five-year balloon. It was, it was a 30-year fixed rate loan, but a five-year balloon. And, um, well, incidentally, apparently the, uh, the son, a few days after closing, had a drug overdose. And he's now in a nursing home. So it turned out she didn't have to do it that way. But... Um, that was a good example of some people want the income, so they'll go the owner financing route. 
But again, it, it's you've got to sweeten the pot enough for them to want to do that long term. Versus short term, it's usually pretty easy to get it pulled off if it's a couple of months. So owner financing, you do get title insurance. This is very standard in a way for me. I call it standard. Um, you, you, you could buy these properties. You can close with any title company you want. It's, it's pretty straightforward. It's really about negotiating the best terms. And oftentimes, if you're going to see owner financing already listed, expect the need for a down payment, right? If, if a property's listed and it says owner will carry, well, usually they want a big down payment. A lot of times they want a down payment larger than a lender is going to charge. So ultimately, it doesn't make sense to do owner financing. And uh, it's still going to be tough, no matter what. If you're negotiating this one or this one, you need to bring your A game. You need to know what you're doing. You need to follow a process so that you make it most palatable for a seller. But we, we spend a lot of time doing a lot of deals like this, including right now in these low inventory times. Because if you deal with the right sellers, you can always pull this off if you know what you're doing. Let's briefly talk about the middle. I told you it's kind of the worst of both sides, so neither party's happy. A contract for a deed or a land contract is where someone who owns the property already free and clear is going to sell the property to you whereby the deed is written in such a way that you become the title holder once you pay it off. And so what that does is that gives the seller more power because technically you don't fully own the property just yet. However, it doesn't hurt, it doesn't help the seller that much because you still have to do a foreclosure if someone doesn't pay you. Although there is a few attorneys that argue there's a way to structure a land contract whereby if there's a default by the borrower, it's considered a holdover tenancy, and therefore you can evict them. I'm not sold on that, because I don't think that most judges are going to take that route. Most judges are going to side with borrowers or tenants anyways, and I think you have to make it much more clear-cut. So in most cases, you're going to have to do a foreclosure to get rid of them, so it doesn't really help the seller. Now, how does it benefit the buyer? Is it better than a lease option? Yes. Because at least there is a, there's there's title is transferred, so there there is this blocking of the problem of a lease option having this you know more encumbrances potentially hitting title, so there is that benefit. However, at the end of the day, it's it's neither good for the buyer or the seller completely. So we pretty much avoid this technique altogether. There is an example where this does fit incredibly well. And that is going to be for capital gains taxes. And so this has been where we have used it with sellers too, if they're worried about capital gains. So let's say, for example, that they have a huge amount of potential capital gains. They inherited the property, so they have a zero basis, basically. And now they're selling for three or 400000 We We saw one not too long ago. That was, uh, they, they inherited it, and it was going to be a $2 million sales price. So we're talking $2 million capital gains. At 20%, that's a large number. And they had already borrowed most of the money out, so they wouldn't even have the 20% to pay. Okay, so... Uh, capital gains taxes are going to only be paid on what is paid out from uh, from month to month because the IRS considers this an installment sale, an installment sale, and uh, that is very helpful. Now, I'm not one to sell properties on owner financing or contract for deed, but there might be an instance where you do. The perfect example would be when you're selling mobile homes in a park. And uh, I just posted on what I consider the best formula for flipping mobile homes. Make sure you check that out. But that does that has nothing to do with this. 
This right here is if you're buying mobile homes in a park, you're basically buying a car or a boat. And then when you're selling the property to someone, if you sell it on a contract for deed, that's the way you have to do it because you can't sell it on owner financing because it's actually not real estate. It's, it has a title. So when you do it this way, though, you can sell it on, on high interest rates. And that's a model many people have done over the years. So this is an example of where this would actually fit because you have to do it this way because just like cars, that's the way mobiles are. They have a title. But other than avoiding the capital gains taxes, we have not found any real benefit in the real world to the contract for deed or the land contract. Now moving to the spectrum of selling the property is the lease option. This is where you are renting the property to someone and then you're giving them the option to purchase. Now again, you can negotiate that with a seller, but we've already talked about the big gaping problem with that. So. With a lease option, I do have a great video on how to structure these in more detail called How to Rent to Own a Home. So check out that video for more in-depth information. This right here is ideal when you're selling a property because you maintain ownership and you maintain the ability to evict. Eviction is a lot faster. A lot faster to evict somebody than it is uh, to foreclose on them. I know right now maybe not so much, but that will pass too. And what it also does is it gives you one more strength. As the owner, if they don't exercise their option to purchase, you get to do it again. And so I have an example that I talked to one of my apprentices yesterday about this. He did a lease option on a deal for two years and it's just expired. He did it at 250 and get this, Right now, that property is worth $350. They did not exercise. They actually want to stay in the property, so he redid the lease. They're good tenants, and he changed the option to be from $250 to $350. Those buyers lost $100,000 by not being able to exercise their option in time. It was a great deal for those tenant buyers. So anyone who says, well, doing a rent to own is such a, a mean thing to do for a tenant buyer, bull. Those tenant buyers had the deal of a lifetime and they didn't execute. So what I love also about selling on a lease option is that not only do you have the power to evict more quickly for a, someone not paying, but you also still own it. And when you still own the property, you get the benefits thereof. You still get, of course, the depreciation and you get the appreciation that can occur. So this technique right here is tailor-made when selling. And you might be saying, wait a minute, Phil, we just talked about all this. And so what you're saying is that you sell properties this direction, you buy properties this direction, uh, that must mean that you're somewhat hypocritical because you're not willing to buy this way and you're not willing to sell this way. Uh, that's correct. I, I do not sell properties subject to where my name is on a loan and I'm turning over title to the property to someone else. But yes, I am negotiating for other people to do it for me. And that's because I'm a different person than many of the people that I deal with. I know I'm going to follow through. I know who I'm going to be two, three, five years from now. I'm going to be that same individual who's executing on his agreements and on his promises. So I'm going to be willing to do this and not feel bad about the fact that I'm not willing to sell that way. There are some people that sell in owner financing. I don't ever see where that makes much sense. If you're going to sell your properties, either sell them the normal way or sell them on, uh, on lease options if you're going to do it that way. Again, there's other benefits to this as well that my other video shares. But this, this is the comparison of creative real estate financing. On one end, you have lease options when you're trying to sell. 
On the other end, when you're trying to buy, you want to do owner financing and subject to. Again, there's a small window in contract for deed or land contracts makes sense, but very little. And, uh, and I hope this has been very helpful to you. I hope you picked up some nuggets from the real world that we have learned the hard way. If you want to learn more about exactly how we do what we do, if you want to learn how we have these proprietary techniques on our subject two, um, then that is with our Freedom Mentor Apprentice Program, where my team and I, we mentor, we guide, we train, and we turn beginners into real estate professionals. And yes, we share in the profits of the deals they do. And so that's what allows me to duplicate myself across America America, and I'm able to do more deals and everybody wins. Also, if you've never read my book, How to Be a Real Estate Investor that I give away for free, make sure you check that out. I do talk about these creative financing techniques in there as well. And again, if you haven't seen the video on uh, how to buy real estate without cash or credit, my lecture at the University of Central Florida, make sure you check that out.